Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Ruth Rogaski, Associate Professor of History and Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University, and she'll be talking about her new book, Knowing Manchuria, Environments, the Senses and Natural Knowledge on an Asian Borderland, which was published in 2022 by University of Chicago Press. The question of how certain parts of the world acquire certain labels and reputations is often an intriguing one, from why European colonialists thought that sea monsters lurked at the edges of maps, to why East Asian visitors to Paris or London today feel let down by the messy realities of those places so different from their ideal types. The region known to some across time as Manchuria has had an especially wide range of ideas projected onto it, as diverse peoples have framed this vast space according to shifting political, spiritual or scientific priorities and through the epistemologies and technologies of their time. The distinct approaches to knowing Manchuria, taken by Manchu emperors, Chinese exiles, European missionaries, Korean poets, indigenous shamans, Russian botanists, Japanese colonists and socialist planners, among, believe it or not, some others, in many ways have brought this place into existence. And these form the focus of Ruth Rogaska's extraordinary new book. Forming a deep exploration of the historical actors and rich ecologies of this region, this tome takes us on multiple journeys, many of them literal, into how different people at different moments sought to understand the Manchurian forests, mountains, plains and earth that surrounded them, whether they came here voluntarily or not. Today, Manchuria is itself a contested term, and it can seem as though regional centres, particularly Beijing and Moscow, would rather not know the place at all. Those seeking to promote a multipolar order of global powers interacting on an abstract world stage find it inconvenient to consider fractious, layered borderlands. Consequently, Rogaski's multi-perspectival and multilingually sourced history of different ways of knowing and of entangled relations between people, place and nature is all the more valuable an account of a region which we should all know better. So I'm happy to say, Ruth Rogaski, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for inviting me, Ed. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, uh, as I was mentioning to you off air, also a great chance for me to talk about uh, something which is absolutely the core of my interest and, and fascination. So I'm looking forward to the chat. Um, but before we get into the contents of the book, uh, perhaps I'll ask you about your kind of trajectory to this point, your academic background and how you became interested in this uh, fascinating region. Uh, okay, well, um, so my first book was about a different place with a different approach, uh, hygienic modernity, focused on local history in Tianjin, uh, the history of medicine, history of public health. And at, as I was doing that research, so this was quite some time ago, when I was interviewing some public health workers in the city, uh, they started talking about the patriotic hygiene campaign and uh, of, the, of the early 1950s and how that was uh, in response to America's use of germ warfare in the Northeast. And uh, of course, I, I had never heard of that. Uh, there really wasn't, uh, it was not a widely known episode or the, the allegations were not widely known in the States. And uh, when I started to look at some of the materials uh, surrounding the allegations and the investigations, I found the, the, the massive report edited uh, in part by Joseph Needham uh, that uh, brought together the science, various scientific investigations uh, done in locales in uh, Northeast China that attempted to prove the use of germ warfare. And one of the, the main thing that I noticed about it was that all the bibliographies, all the scientific literature used to prove what was indigenous nature and what was exogenous nature. Uh, all of the scholarship or the vast majority of the scholarship was written by uh, those who were not indigenous. In other words, they're for, foreign scientists. So really the book, just started off um, many years ago as as being curious about how scientists from around the world wound up in uh, this region and and how they struggled to make sense of the region and then how that scientific knowledge was used toward the building of at, at, at initially right the, the the PRC polity. So that was the genesis of it uh, many many moons ago. Gotcha. Well, yeah, and you have that kind of background in, in at least North China, I suppose, in terms of uh, yeah previous uh, research. But was uh, the Northeast, uh, broadly Manchuria, somewhere you'd spent any time previous to that? Or, or was this a sort of totally new avenue? Uh, totally new. And um, for anyone, I mean, I so admire your border crossing work, but it's not easy going to deal with... <laughs> different places, uh, different, you know, different regimes. So actually the move to the Northeast was, was new for me and um, a bit fraught, but uh, exhilarating at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's uh, in the spirit of the uh, of the region. Uh, it, was, it, it was ever thus or something. Um, well, that's uh, that's great. Um, I guess uh, that leads us fairly sort of naturally on to some broad kind of uh, introductory um, uh 
ideas around around the book as a whole. Um, and you introduce the book uh, with an introduction that uh, actually focuses on an episode of uh, flying or perhaps falling voles. Um, <laughs> we, we might return to the voles uh, a little a little later on, but perhaps you can begin with uh, a bit more of a description of, uh, I guess, what Manchuria is, where it is, you know, for the purposes of, uh, of grounding our discussion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, y- you know, in many ways, this whole book uh, uses as a springboard the pioneering work of Mark Elliott, whose uh, article, Limits of Tartary, really uh, inspired me to think about this region as a, a, an imaginary construct, uh, but one that was full of, of political, social, and cultural import. So, you know, uh, several of my interlocutors said, well, how can you write a book about a place that doesn't exist? And I said, well, the book in some ways is, is just uh, engaging with that process of imagining this place. Um, so the idea that, and, and, you know, I'm trained as an historian of China, so we naturally slip into Dongbei, right? Uh, but what I felt was somewhat lacking in the scholarship or, or the scholarship is out there, but it uh, maybe not brought together was the fact that, you know, for other observers, this might not be Dongbei, but uh, you know, Shibei or in other words, the, the place in the way the place was imagined relied upon the, perspective and locale of the imaginer. And I simply wanted to initially start bringing in more of these voices, more of these perspectives to uh, try to feel out the very fuzzy uh, entity that is Manchuria from these multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned a few of those in very general terms uh, in the introduction, but uh, perhaps you could say a few more things about who the people are that have sought to know it and why it is that so many different people, different constituencies have, have sought an understanding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I think my, my impulse was to start with the various polities going around <laughs> the region. Uh, although simultaneously I thought I shouldn't go from skirting around the outside to talking from the inside out. Uh, So uh, I think it it took a while for China scholars to realize the import for China scholars to realize the importance of this region for Koreans and for Korea, for, for the, you know, uh, observers uh, on the Korean peninsula going back uh, centuries. So, so forays, uh, you know, up north beyond the peninsula itself, uh, I think were very important in understanding what the spiritual, in particular, spiritual importance of this region. Uh, when I tried to move to northern perspectives, um, here I have something of a mishmash of, of Manchu surveyors who, who in the early Qing Right, with the help of indigenous guides, go all the way up to what I, I like to consider a uh, the same longitude. Excuse me, the same latitude as the as the Aleutian Islands. You know, if you if you 
I spend a lot of time on Google Maps, just <laughs> zooming in, zooming out, zooming in, zooming out, in lieu of having a spaceship, um, and, and and seeing the the northern expanse of of the uh, Qing Empire as it was kind of sketched in. Uh, but I chose to look at a 19th century moment when European sciences, European-based sciences came to the region. And in chapter four, looking at uh, botanists who, for me, fortunately, wrote in German, since that is a language that I'm conversant with, uh, and, and their perspectives coming from, well, an, an empire situated to the north, but really coming from the, the western regions and coming into this this uh, locale. So I look, so European science really coming in from the north and the west. Uh, and, and uh, you know, really the, the book starts with the, uh, you already mentioned the, uh, the early Qing uh, Han Chinese exiles. And there, I think I thought a great deal about what it would take to walk <laughs> or to go in an ox cart from the Jiangnan environment to to Ninguta. Uh, so so everyone, most of these perspectives are moving in, and and I emphasize the journey and I emphasize the the shifting perspectives, but. Um, there are, for me, very there were difficult moments to 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 sketch out, but moments where I could see more local perspectives. And in order to do that, mostly I turned to things like uh, shamans' chants or uh, <clears throat> the botanical knowledge of of Hujia uh, or Nanai people. So, so those were some of the multiple perspectives that I tried to weave in. Mm. Yeah, that's great, and uh, and it's a it's a sort of rich sense of these different, well, precisely ways of knowing uh, that that really forms the, the 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 patchwork of the book, which is nevertheless one that's so kind of uh, cumulative and, and layered because it also sort of follows this broadly kind of chronological structure in in, in a sort of broad sweep, uh, whilst not just sort of rigidly moving from one time to the next. Um, but since you mentioned the European kind of uh, often Russian mediated um, uh, various botanists and other, uh, I guess, practitioners of uh, whatever kind of post-enlightenment uh, European science type um, uh, type methods, um, those are the people, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest uh, an Anglophone academic reader at a Western institution might have the most natural sympathy with. So I wonder when it comes to understanding different epistemological constructions or ways of exactly approaching this space, how do, how do you see uh, is the best way to get at these different ways of knowing, given that, you know, there is the natural quote unquote understanding of the relationship, for example, between person and nature, person and environment that that you as a writer might have. How how do you sort of try to delve into these, whether they're as you say, indigenous or or just pre uh pre kind of Euro globalization type uh ways of thinking about things? No, that's that's a great question. And um what I tried to do and, it, and it's a method that evolved over the course of the years that I, I traveled to to this region and, and, and walked walked the terrain. What I really tried to do was, I think, 
and, and chapter four about the botanists is maybe the clearest uh, discussion of this method. I tried to gauge, uh, not judge, but um, sketch out degrees, different degrees of entanglement. I think you used the word entanglement at one point, and this became important to me as I was writing the book. The book, I, I really see the book primarily as a methodological, a stab at a methodological intervention, as opposed to any particular um, uh, stating any particular set of facts about Manchuria or about the history of China. Um, so what my, my curiosity really revolved about what was the em- embodied engagement between uh, humans and the environment uh, among humans and, and uh, other than human to, to create what, what you know many scholars today would call more than human world. Uh, and so I really turned to what I could best understand as physical engagement. Um, and so, especially with that fourth chapter on botany, trying to understand the actual techniques, the physical techniques and the ways of seeing that resulted in botanic, European botanical knowledge and the physical techniques and ways of sensing, uh, not always just visual, but also tactile and uh, what I call visceral knowledge, in ingestion-based sensing, uh, how these embodied forms of knowledge uh, were conducted and how they might differ. So that's uh, and to do that, in some ways, I just relied on my own body, uh, my own body traveling through space, my own body uh, uh, looking out over a terrain. Uh, so uh, as, as faulty and full of, uh, you know, caveats as that technique might be, I found it uh, could be a, a good illuminating start. Mm. Well, I mean that that personal uh, sort of uh, reflection on on positionality is something that does form a, a really helpful uh, component of the uh, scene setting in the introduction of the book. Um, what did you What did you actually do? I guess uh, is the is, is the direct uh, the direct way of putting the next question I have about about. Uh, sort of your methodological approach, um, both in terms of selection of sources, as you say, there was this starting point, perhaps with a, a moment in a much more recent sort of historical time and within a Chinese context. But how did you sort of go about um, foraging, perhaps uh, might be Forge. the right word for, for <laughs> your, your source base? And also, yeah, in terms of embodied time spent in the region, how, how did that uh, sort of pan yeah. out? Yeah. So another fantastic question uh, coming from someone who has such, you know, deep experiences uh, in the region itself. Uh, my foraging started in the place where I was taught how to forage, which is the archive. And it, it could be, and of course, you know, my first book is is heavily archival based. And so that was what I knew. That's what I loved. And for all of its frustrations. But um, of course, the time spent researching this book was also the time during which archives in, in uh, the PRC became 
there were, there were more and more strictures to, uh, to access. And, and this became actually, I think for the Northeast became apparent even earlier than it may have for other places. Uh, um, so there was, you know, in some ways, this is a book born of frustration. It's, it's lemonade from the lemons that I started to encounter. The other bunch of lemons besides the archive. Uh, ah, so the, really the main inspiration was my first climb up uh, Bektusan, uh, Changbaishan, uh, the Long White Mountain or uh, Whitehead Mountain. And um, so that was in 06. And climbing the mountain, so I'd been doing a lot of reading and was uh, already in the mode of thinking of this as a sacred place. And when I arrived there, two things to the region, two things struck me. One, I couldn't see it, <laughs> I couldn't find it <laughs> until I was actually on top of it or uh, about to be on top of it, or I didn't realize I was already uh, uh, halfway up the mountain before I realized, oh, this is this is the mountain. So just sensing the terrain from the position of being in the terrain was such a revelation to me. The other thing was getting to the top, descending down to the Caldera Lake and not being able to go around the lake, which for the the region, the the, the mountain and the lake itself was probably the most beautiful place I've ever been on, on this earth. And um, the, I, I had an intensely emotional reaction to the fact that borders uh, inhibited my ability to engage with this environment. Now, you know, one thing I I've thought about a lot since writing the book was, well, perhaps <laughs> it's a good, you know, those borders are keeping my white butt from... <laughs> My white colonialist, but you know, in other words, it's like, who am I? Who am I, given my own positionality, to to rage against borders? But what it did, what that experience did, was uh, prompt me to start thinking of border transcending ways of perceiving these environments to the best of of my ability. So, um, um, most of my travels were on the PRC side of the border. But um, every place that I wrote about, I traveled to. Um, it got more and more difficult as 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 the years progressed. Um, and my last my last stop was uh, I think 2017 in what I kept calling the Sino-Soviet border to my <laughs> colleagues. I realized, whoops, uh, um, not Sino-Soviet, but the the uh, Sanjiang Pingyuan, the 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 area where the uh, Yusuri and uh, Amur and Songhua rivers come together. So those, those, those were the things I tried to do, uh, but it was because I was frustrated primarily because I turned to the earth because I was frustrated by the paper archive. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that it, it doesn't read only as a sort of last resort, I think. It's, uh, <laughs> it has a very strong and uh, uh, significant place within the overall picture. Um, and incidentally, I, I'd uh, add as a footnote that I think lots of people actually locally would also refer to that border area as uh, Sino-Soviet or at least the <laughs> the country across the 
across the river as Sulian, uh, as Soviet <laughs> Union, that was still still very much alive in the uh, in the consciousness. So uh, I, I don't think uh, you have too much to worry. All you were doing was voicing emic uh, emic perspectives there. So um, no problem. Um, anyway, well that's great, Ruth. Thank you for that sort of uh, overall grounding of uh, how the project came together. Um, so as I mentioned already, the chapters unfold in a sort of broadly chronological perspective, but that isn't really the main point, I think, because each one of them encapsulates at least one, if not several, uh, different uh, ways of knowing this place that have been practiced between broadly, I suppose, the uh, mid to late 17th century and and, and uh, the late 20th century. Um, we begin uh, kind of in that, uh, in that vein, uh, I suppose veins being a key term also that arises here uh, in relation to dragons, but with uh, with the Qing and and especially the sort of early to mid Qing, the the kind of uh, expansion and and efflorescence of this vast, uh, ultimately multinational, multi ethnic empire, uh, which arose in many regards from this from this region. Um, could you say something then about how uh, this region, which looked at from a contemporary China as Dongbei, right as you've said, northeast China, um, looks like a kind of peripheral space? Um, how did different constituencies within the Qing Empire, ruled by Manchus, but peopled largely by not Manchus, in many cases by Han Chinese, how did those different constituencies look at this region and attempt to understand it? So um, that's a, that's <laughs> that, that is really the crux of the book, right? That's what I try to do throughout each chapter. So um, I, I, I think... The one, I guess, the way I might want to approach that question is to suggest an overarch, a, a kind of a overarching trajectory of those particular viewpoints. Um, the the book itself really um, is an exercise in exploding monoliths. Uh, I, in many ways, simply want to state that there is no there, there, uh, but that we have to try to grasp and, and hold within our minds these multiple perspectives. Uh, and so I do, I know I, I, I start in some ways simply because I was entranced by their poetry. I start by looking at the, the Han Chinese exiles who journey there. Um, part of that Part of the reason I did that was because I had a strong sense that for many observers whose writings we have, including people like Manchu emperors, there was always a journey involved to this place. And it existed in the mind prior to it existing in the eye. Um, so um, the, the overall trajectory in, in the expanse of the book is really to, to think about how a place that is thought of as, as a, a center of, a, of, of the dragon vein, the, the uh, powerful, uh, earthbound, earthborn uh, s- spiritual uh, resonances that emerge from, from the uh, sacred white mountain and, and the, the tombs of the, of the progenitors of the of the imperial line, how this goes from being the sacred space to being a space where uh, the earth itself is uh, exploited for different forms of energy. Uh, I, I think that 
you know, I talk a little bit about energy transitions, that uh, chi, the chi, the, the, the energies uh, that are seen as emanating from, from um, the White Mountain and through traveling through dragon veins in Manchuria uh, are very much in some ways mined, uh, M-I-N-E-D, mined by the, the Qing Imperium. But uh, there is, and, and, and you know, along with the actual, you know, things like furs and and freshwater pearls and ginseng, there, you know, Manchuria has always been a, a place of of extraction. But I try to show an overall shift in perspectives on extraction that happens in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century with the rise of of global capitalism and um, the hitching of science and technology to the wagon of, of capitalist exploitation of, of, of natural terrain. So that's, you know, that's really the, the arc of the book. If, um, and all of the little pieces of different perspectives while at one, in, in one way, I'm simply, I'm trying to, explode the region simultaneously i'm also trying to show a a temporal arc and changes in epistemology and approaches to to uh to the environment i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So in this early to mid kind of Qing period uh, with which you begin and which broadly, I guess, is covered in the first couple of chapters, which deal respectively with these landscapes or narratives of of exile in this landscape. uh, And then secondly, with uh, the 1682 Kangxi expedition to uh, this region, Um, you you do kind of... um, I guess, uh, I guess, describe ways of understanding this place that rely variously on on poetic forms, on ways of comparing the landscape to known legible landscapes uh, out, outside, kind of, uh, or, or you know, elsewhere in in China. In the case of some of these uh, Chinese poets, um, so did you see those as being um, kind of quite 
distinct uh, kind of ways of understanding uh, the, the the region as a, as a whole that, that maybe reinforce the separateness of of Qing and or of Manchu uh, rulers of the Qing and the Han constituents. I know this is you know you mentioned I only ask this because you mentioned drawing on Mark Elliott's work and of course a lot of uh, New Qing history, if you like, and exploration of this period, including in this region, has. Uh, debated the kind of Qing universalism versus, uh, or, or as as it relates to a sort of Manchu particularism, did did you see there being a kind of Manchu way of looking at this place versus a Han Chinese way of looking at this place, or is it not mm. quite so simple mm. as that? I don't think it's as I I I don't think it's as simple as that. I um and I I I'm not sure if I was aiming for an explicit comparison. Um, I, you know, others, uh, some fantastic scholarship, David Bellow, um, you know, Schlesinger's book on, on world trim and fur, uh, really talk about the, the imperial court's perspective on, on their Northeastern territories as, as a place of, you know, both of natural purity, but also as a place that, that provides the, the court and, and, the Qing world with their, their luxury goods. So uh, when I shifted from the Han Chinese exiles who are trying to make sense of a place where the sun doesn't set and uh, uh, where plants seem different, but they seem the same at the same time, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that there's a, a sense of shifting borders. I, I don't... Uh, mental borders uh, as as the the Qing Empire uh, makes this this region part of of the larger polity um, and, and I think that even the the Qing court as 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 represented by this the the, the second uh, eastern um, Dong, this the second Dongxun um, that Kangxi leads uh, is also grappling with a, a place that's relatively foreign to most of them, and a sense of shifting boundaries, shifting beneath their feet as as they they move forward. And the I think the one consistent thing that we see out of uh, you know I look I, I use Gaoshuqi's uh, account for Beast's account and and and, and some poems ostensibly written by Kangxi along the way, uh, and, and Shilu and things like that. Uh, the one consistent thing I see is, is Kangxi almost, in, in a, almost desperately uh, using violence to stamp this place as, yes, this is a, a violence, of course, against, um, against other species. Uh, as as a way of stamping a, a an imperial uh, imprint on on this region, right through so hunting much, and stuff, right? It's, it, uh, hunt, it's, it's, it's yeah. it, the hunt, uh, the hunt, and also just the fact that they, you know, I'm reading this stuff and I'm like, dude, it's March. Why? I mean, obviously, we know why he wanted. He, I, I do think that Kangxi knew what he was doing by taking his his entourage up there. It's like Vermont in what it's called mud season, right? You don't go anywhere without your four wheel drive. Uh, but it, so it's also it, in some ways inflicting violence on the bodies of his own courtiers and, and, and uh, retinue. 
mm-hmm. in well, order I, to. I, I hmm. Some might suggest that four wheel drive uh, users have the same imperial attitude that uh, <laughs> someone self designated as the son of heaven uh, might possess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure he didn't have to personally worry about too many of the uh, the hardships. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense as you as you said this this. Uh, was a in many ways you know um well a, a process and a way of understanding this place or a process uh, of grasping at an understanding of this place that defies easy categorization into uh this was this was how manchu people saw it or this is how uh chinese people from the the nadi from the central part of the empire saw it um because this place is simultaneously a source and a kind of uh flow outflowing point of uh, Manchu spiritual and sort of quasi-ethnic legitimacy, but also somewhere that is a destination where those same Manchu rulers send exiles and set, banish people right from the from the core of the empire. So it, it really doesn't fit so neatly into uh, this is what this place was for for these people. I think uh, I think you're right there. Um, but then uh, yeah, so moving into uh, the kind of mid mid part of the book. Uh, we have an entire chapter dedicated to uh, the mountain which you mentioned earlier, Pektasan or uh, or Changbaishan, uh, which exactly as you've mentioned is something that uh, is quite hard to sort of identify as a mountain on approach. And but one, once you're there, you're in no doubt at all that you're at the summit of something extremely large and powerful. Um, but could you say then a bit more about why it was so significant? It's a very uh, simplistic question, maybe, but. Um, what what made this mountain uh, so significant to the various uh, people that surrounded mm. it? Um, well, it, you know, of course, I just automatically went to a modern explanation in my brain, and that's it's the volcano. <laughs> um, you know, but I do think there's something to it, and in the in the book, I I start. Uh, I tried really hard because I was critiqued on this point to avoid doing what's a, what had in, in the past was a fairly common environmental history approach, which was first you situate this place in its reality by using scientific literature and a scientist perspective, that, that, that data to, uh, and then you move into what your, your people's thought, thought about the place. And, and, uh, so in, in chapter three, um, what I try to do is um, citing the White Mountain. Uh, what I tried to do was present science as one way of thinking about the place. And it's a language that we moderns understand. So here, here I go. I'm going to do this anyway and explain uh, that you know, using uh, ice cores pulled from Greenland and and tephra mounds uh, in Hokkaido and, and in these sorts of ways, uh, scientists have informed us that in a certain in such and such a year there was a massive massive eruption of this volcano. Uh, and it happened at a time of political turmoil in the in the nor- in Northeast Asia. Um, and even though there's no written records of it, in the way uh, you know Vesuvius blows in 
<laughs> there's lots of folks to around to to write about it. Um, but if 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 you know Pictisan blows, we don't really have the the written records prior to more or less an early modern period. But I I, I think that it's it's the um, the explosive nature. I mean, it, when you climb it. I never really thought about it as a volcano. I probably should have since it was rumbling at the time. I just didn't know it. But for for people in that region, knowing that the, the explosive nature of it, um, that you, and, and when it with the millennial um, eruption uh, sent a plume up into this sky that was at least according to the way as much as scientists can figure it out, that was um, more dramatic than the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I, I would say, I would venture a guess that that sort of um, activity from a, from a, a natural form, from a formation in your neighborhood would, would cause people to think of it in a certain way. Mm. No, that's uh, that's understandable. And I guess temporally, I think you, you suggest that it, it lies at a kind of point at which it would have been, uh, a kind of fairly fertile moment for, uh, yeah, nourishing narratives of of ethnic and national origin on the part of uh, of both Manchus right to the north uh, of the mountain and to, of Koreans too uh, to the south who see uh, Tangun, this uh, legendary ancestor, to have sort of uh, arisen from this mountain, and indeed contemporary North Koreans who see uh, another uh, sort of spiritual ancestor in the form of Kim Jong Il to have uh, emerged from this mountain. But uh, in any case, that's uh, yeah, that that's a sort of great, um, I guess, uh, core pivot uh, in many ways of the of, of the book as a whole. There in in, in chapter three, uh, just as the mountain itself is a sort of pivotal point of of, of the region, even though it li- itself it lies at the very edge, uh, one very southern eastern edge of the of the region as a as a whole. Um, but yeah, you've you've actually provided a link quite well there to thinking in the latter part of the book about the sort of eruption of uh, these modern uh, you know used analytically ways of looking at this region uh, that come in in the very end part of the Qing uh, with the also uh, arrival of the end part of the Russian Empire into this area um, and you know then subsequently over the 20th century so once you get to the point where you're describing uh, as you as we've mentioned already botanists as well as uh, mining prospectors and fossil hunters and uh, also plague scientists later all kinds of other peoples how do uh, efforts to understand this place change uh, and does does it all change at once or you know is there a sort of layered transition from these more complex ways of knowing this landscape does the spiritual end up interacting with the scientific to, to put it in very blunt terms well, here I think it's important for us to realize that there are spiritual underpinnings that it, we simply, uh, for science, we simply typically don't call them spiritual underpinnings. Uh, but there are, I think in the book, I call them fant- uh, fantasies, which um, there are urges. Um, mythologies, um, ideas that drive science as well. And um, 
here, you know, the underpinning this uh, the, the underpinning spirituality, as it were, is uh, for for what happens in the 20th century is is this idea, this myth of the potential for always expanding. Uh, extraction of resources, always expanding uh, progress, always expanding uh, wealth uh, that, that, that drives, that is as at the heart of, of the forms of exploitation, uh, environmental exploitation, uh, and the sciences that, that uh, undergird that, uh, explo- those exploitations of resources. Uh, so I, I think that what you'd find primarily is that the texts reflect a shift in spirituality <laughs> as, 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 a, as opposed to s- spiritual. Pers- and, and, you know, here I'm messing with the word spirit, spirit and spiritual, right? Uh, but, you know, if you want to call it intellectual underpinnings that, that, that people feel in their hearts and it drives them, <laughs> Perhaps we're talking about the same the same sort of thing, albeit with different outcomes. Mm. I think centering the people who are working in harmony or in in sympathy with these sorts of uh, broad ways of thinking is probably the best approach, right? Because then we stop short of saying that modern science is uh, just another religion, or you know, not that that is a totally indefensible position, but it's it's a very hard to it's a very complicated to defend sort of a sort of a position, or at least would require the book to be about lots of things that aren't anything to do with uh, with Manchuria. Uh, so I think uh, I, th- I think it is your it's your person centered, your character centered sort of approach here uh, that really you know brings out those those sorts of uh, shifting commitments. Um, so I mean, perhaps if we can just yeah say a few things about some of these specific specific people. Um, maybe even jumping forward to around the time that you said was your sort of entry point to uh, the project as a whole. Um, how does uh, the kind of the scientific approach during the 20th century, especially among uh, among Chinese scientists, but perhaps also with the help in some cases of, of Soviet ones or other, other figures in this region to things like plague, um, and then ultimately those flying voles as well that we mentioned, uh, what does that what does that tell us about sort of the place of Manchuria within a kind of emerging um, new Chinese order uh, in the 20th century? Well, I talk about the flying voles, so the uh, rodents that were allegedly dropped from planes, uh, from airplanes and, and, and land, land in, uh, across a series of villages in, in uh Heilongjiang. And not this 1952, I think, right? Is the, uh, uh, yes, that's, yeah. that's, I guess I'm, I'm, going, I'm going there. Um, I, it's, it's a pretty short chapter that follows a much longer chapter about plague research as done uh, by Chinese and Japanese scientists in the earlier 20th century. And I, the, the title of the chapter is Scientific Redemption. So what I saw... Uh, being unable to <laughs> solve the problem, the question of whether or not it actually happened, um, uh, 
think of that problem as not particularly interesting for a, a historian of science. Uh, what I try to probe is the, the uses of these scientific investigations for the building of a new of new China, this new polity that uh, is uh, affecting control over a place that has been contested for really uh, centuries at this point. So uh, what I saw uh, was a very clear attempt at uh, using science to indicate what was the nature that belonged within the borders of China, of new China. Uh, And what was quite interesting, though, was that the scientists who were generating this, um, the Chinese scientists who were generating this data, um, most if not all of them had backgrounds, uh, their, their education was, uh, it, their instruction in science was, was acquired abroad. And in the case of the epidemiologists and bacteriologists that worked on the germ warfare investigations in uh, Dongbei, uh, these Chinese scientists had studied actually in Japan during, or in either Manchukuo and Manchukuo um, establishments, or many had gone to Japan during, during the uh, after after uh, 1931, so uh, I you know it, it was I couldn't delve into that uh, as deeply as I wanted to. I simply noted these uh, educational backgrounds and recognized that there was redemption. There were redemption redemptive projects going on all around through uh, using science to redeem the area from its history of of uh, conquest, domination, and, and, and uh, attempted colonization uh, to redeem it from its reputation as a, as a disease, singularly diseased place, uh, and potentially on the part of the scientists themselves, uh, uh, attempts to redeem their, uh, their pasts uh, of cooperating, almost said collaborating, cooperating with, with international science, which was, uh, you know, intertwined with imperialism in, in the mid 20th century. Mm. Yeah, I think that sort of using science, uh, a new Chinese based PRC science to combat Japanese imperial science, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some of the, you know, kind of horrible experiments and things done in Harbin uh, during the Japanese colonial period. Um, and indeed, also to combat, uh, I guess, earlier iterations of these imperial colonial kind of uh, um, models, which have in- entered the region from Russia, and, and then more broadly in China from other colonial powers. It's a very interesting uh, sort of case study and a site for uh, exploring these different ways of knowing and the power that comes with understanding a place, um, you know, a very interesting com- comparison with these earlier overlapping ways of knowing the region that we've discussed already between those that sort of have their roots in kind of Manchu particularistic explanations of what's going on or Korean, maybe a bit less explored in our conversation. But um, I think uh, the sort of way that these paradigms you know, are sort of also advanced to sort of claim or to defend or to incorporate, in many cases, geography and nature increasingly incorporate, I guess, later as nation statehood is sort of a big motive uh, for, you know, wanting to discuss or describe this region. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, it's a it's an absolutely kind of 
uh, fascinating and many layered tapestry that we haven't had uh, time to get into at every level, unfortunately. But um, perhaps to sort of uh, close us out or to bring us back to uh, what you said yourself was the final stop on your own personal uh, kind of um, fieldwork expeditions to this area of the Sanjiang Plain, we end with the sent down youth of the uh, Cultural Revolution era and uh, this kind of uh, final mass uh, form of understanding this area. Um, that as the kind of apogee or the final point of, of knowing that is visited in the book, where does that leave us in terms of understanding the many layers that go all the way back to that late Qing period? Uh, have these things all, do you think, contributed equally when it comes to knowing Manchuria as as we or as people might today? Um, and do you think this is something very specific to this region or could a similar kind of investigation of ways of knowing a place be conducted anywhere else? Those are fantastic questions and uh, I'll, I'll give it a try here. Um, there's There would be you're correct that I, I end the book with the sent down youth and um, of course the the cultural outpouring of, of this group makes it easier to to um, you know there's just so much rich so many rich sources there to work with um, that it, it, it becomes a bit easier to write a vivid embodied history uh, using these sources, but, you know, there could have been a a very different way of writing this book. And that would have been to have tried to understand perspectives on the region from, from the viewpoint of those who labored there. So I end, I end the book with, uh, really suggesting that, uh, that the knowledge built through labor is, uh, Perhaps it is sort of apogee of embodied, um, embodied knowledge and forms the broadest base of, of what it means to know a place. People who, who, whose, whose bodies in some ways, I mean, of course, for the sent down youth are sacrificed uh, to, to, to maintain human life in a place. So there could have been a different way, you know, I could have tried to have traced a labor history back to say the quasi serfs who who work who worked on on Qing manorial farms back going into into the 1600s um, you know there's there's scholarship on this um, but uh, one could turn it on try to turn it on its head and make it an embodied uh, try to make it an embodied entangled history uh, perhaps by looking at um, Farming implements, for example, I think is a is a looking at material culture. The material culture of labor is a could be an interesting way of going about it. But that's you know that's not that's not what I did. But if I were to take the concluding spirit of that last chapter and work it through the entire book, that's that's what I would do, and to suggest that indeed it's through labor that places are ultimately known. Mm. I mean that that kind of just as an aside, draws me to think a little about the way that uh, some of these uh, early uh, PRC or, or kind of high Mao era uh, exiles or, or, or sent down people ejected from the center uh, are often seen as the 
if there are such a thing, the kind of good settlers uh, in some of the peripheral regions of of China, right? Whether it's uh, here is a different case, particularly given the historical population of the area. But Xinjiang, for example, is somewhere where people who came down came there at this point are seen as somehow a bit more attached. You know the the whatever Lao Xinjiang Ren, the, the old Xinjiang people. I mean, the, the kind of sent down youth of the mid 20th century in Dongbei maybe have a similar labor born attachment and some claim to an embodied uh, 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 sort of uh, attachment to that land. Uh, I don't know if that's over romanticizing uh, histories of violent settlement and dispossession. Uh, if, if it is, uh, I, I'm very sorry about that. But uh, it just kind of occurs to me that it does seem that in general you sort of earn a little bit of cred uh, in your way of understanding and way of being attached to, to a place if you've kind of yeah labored there as you suggest yeah yeah so that you know it's hard for me and given that it was a mass phenomenon then we simply have to acknowledge uh, 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 there I think acknowledge that this is is a a uh, Gener- particularly generative way of, of knowing Manchuria at, at this point in, in our in our history. Uh, I think what I'm trying, what I was trying to, if there's a value established there, it's it's the value of labor um, in and of itself. So um, skirting perhaps some of the difficult political questions that you've just. That's entirely fine. No, I I, I should probably skirt them more myself. But no, I think uh, that's uh, that's great, Ruth. Well, thank you very much. Um, That's been a really great uh, exposition of the book as a whole. Uh, As I mentioned already, there's an absolutely enormous amount of uh, extremely rich and uh, un-get-toable material in there (laughs) within a one-hour conversation. Uh, So thank you very much for for appearing. Um, Before uh, we let you go, though, it would be great uh, if you could say something about what you've been working on since uh, Manchuria. Uh, I gather that it's uh, not really quite... uh, It's it's, it's not uh, necessarily quite as far from your own base as this book was. Yeah, well, although in, in some ways there's inspiration from my my conclusions that uh, that it's it behooves us to look at the local to understand a broader phenomenon. Uh, I am working on Chinese medicine in Nashville, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, the where where Vanderbilt University is, in the place where I've lived for the past fifteen years. Mm. Uh, so it's a combination of, of contemporary history uh, and uh, more uh, sort of anthropological, uh, you know, um, observations of, of what Chinese medicine uh, means to practitioners and to patients, to sufferers in the community that I'm part of. So that's, that's my current project, a little bit easier to research in these pandemic years. Um, mm. But really, I think there's there's a continuity with this book because of my uh, obsession, shall we say, with with exploring the local, right, and also perhaps with different uh, uh, different ways of knowing things. The in this case, perhaps the body and uh, and the, the the sort of I don't know zoological dimension of human existence. <laughs> um, I- Yes, yes. Anyway, fantastic. Thank you very much, Ruth. Uh, it's been really great talking to you today. Oh, I've had a, I've had a wonderful time. Thank you so much, Ed.
And listeners, thank you too, as ever, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>